This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 44, Tricksters. This is going to be a quick one. I just wanted to talk about something with you that I've been thinking about as I've been preparing to jump back into the series on Jacob. Not quite ready to get into that yet, but something related to it, not really a part of it, is uh, something I want to share with you in this episode. I've been trying to figure Jacob out and just, you know, thinking think about his place in Bible history and and really how he relates to Christ. And I found one way to think about him that's a little bit different that has been suggested by folklore throughout the world in several different points of history across different cultures and civilizations. It's this character in folklore that you see popping up in all kinds of places called the trickster. Tricksters come in many different shapes and forms. In Greek mythology, Hermes was a trickster. He invented lying and taught Odysseus how to lie. And then uh, in Norse mythology, you have Loki, the shapeshifter. And in African-American folklore, you have Br'er Rabbit. That's probably the example we're most familiar with. Uh, Native American culture, you have the coyote. Uh, Sometimes these guys are heroes. Sometimes they're anti-heroes. Sometimes they come off seeming very clever. Sometimes they're the ones that get tricked. It reminds me a lot of Jacob. And I wonder if... Jacob is being echoed in all of these myths and legends in some way. It's just very interesting that you find them. And I've only just named uh, a few examples. There's so many more that I could talk about. Jacob, as you know, is named deceiver or supplanter. That's what his name Jacob means. And he proved worthy of that name so many times especially early in his life, prior to his wrestling with the angel overnight. He tricked his brother out of his birthright with a bowl of stew. He tricked his father into blessing him over his brother by dressing up as Esau. He tried to trick his father-in-law Laban. His father-in-law Laban tricked him. There, There's all this trickery going on between Rebekah and and uh, Jacob, and Laban, and Leah, and Rachel. It's just one deceit after another. Where does all of this come from? Well, it obviously comes from a very bad place in our hearts, and it's something we need to overcome because the Bible encourages us to be honest and sincere people and people of truth, and that's what we work towards. And you see the arc of Jacob's life getting closer and closer to that as he leaves his bargaining, negotiating, cheating ways behind and becomes a truer person, even getting this new identity from God. Israel, he strives over Jacob, the deceiver, supplanter. Another thought that I had is, I'm afraid sometimes people get the idea that the gospel is just some kind of divine sleight of hand, some trick, some something where God is trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And I and I know that that is a temptation for human beings to think because 
That's exactly what the disciples seemed to think at first when the gospel was unfolding before their eyes. On the night of Jesus' arrest, you have Judas betraying Jesus. Now, why did he do that? We're never told exactly why. On the surface, it seems to have been motivated by money. Maybe that's the case. But 30 pieces of silver just doesn't seem worth becoming the most notorious person who ever lived. Judas may have had in mind that Jesus was not getting the job done. He he might have been trying to force his hand. In fact, there's some Gnostic texts that that suggests that kind of thing. I'm not saying these are inspired texts or anything like that. I'm just saying that people have interpreted Jesus's life that way and uh, Judas's life that way, and and maybe that's what was going on. All we do know is that after he saw that things did not play out however he thought they might, he went out and he hanged himself instead of dealing with the fallout. And the rest of the disciples, too, according to Matthew 26, all deserted him at his arrest and fled the scene. John and Peter come back, but Peter, while warming his hands by the fire outside the place where Jesus was undergoing his trials before the Sanhedrin, this person recognized him, and he denied even knowing Christ. Three times, in fact, he denied that he knew Christ, swearing that he never knew him. That, of course, was something Peter came to regret. But in the moment, you wonder if Peter and the other disciples, at least a few of them, maybe all of them at some point, wondered, were we the victims of some cruel joke? Was Jesus really not the Son of God? Jesus, by the way, had told them what was going to happen. He said, I will suffer I will. This is when Peter broke in and said, rebuked him for saying these things and said, you know, this isn't, you, you can't let this happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Still, they seemed surprised and taken aback by the crucifixion, as if Jesus had not predicted it. At least it's not what they expected out of the Messiah. And then the resurrection happens. And again, it appears. The disciples think they are they think they're they're being tricked in some way. Mary is the first to see Jesus with her own eyes and she doesn't recognize him at first. He is just resurrected. She thinks he's the gardener. She's talking to him about where they might have laid the body of her Lord. She's she's weeping and Jesus says her name and that that's when the recognition dawns on her. And he tells her, go and tell my brothers. Go tell the disciples what has happened. But according to Luke, when she goes and tells them, it's as an idle tale to them. In other words, they didn't believe her. The other gospel accounts confirm that. They just didn't believe her. Peter and John run to the tomb. They look and they see that it's empty. The stone has been rolled away. The linen garments are neatly folded and put to the side, but they just don't know what to make of it. It never came into their mind to believe what Jesus had predicted. They, they think they're some victim of, of some practical joke. And so they go to the upper room and lock the doors. And it's there that Jesus appears to them. Somehow 
he faced through the wall or he he got to them miraculously he, he he was able to do things in that state that normal bodies don't do and in his resurrection body he appeared to them and said peace be with you and they all got a chance to be with him except thomas thomas wasn't there and you'll remember that afterwards they tell thomas the lord has appeared to us he he isn't dead he's risen and thomas says I won't believe it, not unless I can put my hands in the scars on his hands and and touch the scar in his side. I will never believe it. And one week later, the following Sunday, Jesus gives him the opportunity to do what he wants to do. He's there, and the text never says that Thomas ever actually reaches out and touches Jesus, just that he falls to his knees and he expresses worship, saying, My Lord and my God. They had to be shown that this was not a trick. This was real. And I think we need to understand that that the gospel is a real historical event. And it's just as Paul lays it out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that he died in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He actually died, and he actually rose from the dead on the third day. This is so important for us to believe, to know that we're not victims of some divine practical joke as well. First of all, we have to believe that he really actually died on the cross, that he in human form died just as we die, because he's up there as a human substitute. Now, you know, a non-human can't die for a human. It has to be a human being that dies on that cross on our behalf. Otherwise, he doesn't die the death that we deserve, and there's no substitution, and therefore no redemption. But Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, that's a statement on the, the fact of Jesus dying just as we die in our place so that we don't have to suffer eternally for the consequences of our sins, but we can be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's also absolutely essential that we believe that he rose from the dead and that his resurrection is symbolic or suggestive of our future resurrection when he returns. And this is so important that if we don't accept it, our faith is meaningless. A point that Paul is making to his audience in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Another translation says, we are most miserable. 
and that's that's really the truth if we don't buy into the resurrection we we've had a joke played on us this is some cosmic sleight of hand not the truth and what is religion for what is christian faith for if it's not for the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ the resurrection of christ is the basis for our hope in our own resurrection paul continues in verse 20 saying that christ has been raised from the dead and then he calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep first fruits were the beginnings of the harvest and the idea was at that time when the harvest begins the the first fruits are symbols of more of the same to come so Christ's resurrection works like that. He is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And his resurrection is a sign of more to come. When he returns, we too will rise from the dead. And that's our hope, but we don't have it unless Jesus really did come out of that tomb the third day. Paul's faith, and, and mine, and I'm sure yours too, is that he actually did. So it's essential that we proclaim it that we continue to proclaim it and that we insist on its on its truth to make the proclamation that that paul made in first timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where he calls the mystery of godliness this he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory. I don't know if these thoughts are very helpful with the Jacob story. It gives us a good contrast between Jacob in his deceitful stage and Jesus, whereas Jacob was playing tricks. He wasn't who he claimed to be. He disguised himself and did all of these things to deceive people Christ, on the other hand, was exactly who he claimed to be. He said he was the Son of God, and then he proved it. He said he would die, and he died. He said he would come out of the tomb the third day, and he did. And it's because of that that we have hope. If God had sent some trickster to play with man and subvert societal norms and satirize things and just show us how clever he was... We might have been entertained, we might have been changed, we might have been angered and frustrated, but we certainly would have no hope. I end a lot of these episodes with a reading of some kind, and I referred to the Native American folklore that involves the coyote trickster, and he's an interesting character. Uh, Gary Snyder, the poet, uh, talked about him in one article where he said that the coyote trickster is in a lot of Native American myths, and there are several widely differing interpretations of what he might be. He's some kind of a cultural hero, trickster, who holds contradictory powers and plays a role that's sometimes creative and sometimes destructive, or an archetype of the immature, unsocialized ego, or he says a perennial, witty, amoral survivor and sometimes he's depicted as the outright principle of evil, as a devil. It depends on what story you're reading. What story you're reading, uh, 
as to what what the coyote represents in the Native American folklore. He's a really interesting character, and if you read some of the stories, you'll find yourself visualizing him in different ways. Uh, nobody knows exactly how he's supposed to be visualized as an actual coyote or an uh, anthropomorphized coyote. That's usually how I think of him as I think of these. But I wanted to end with a reading from uh, this Native American poet, Blue Cloud, that speaks to the coyote trickster, and it just kind of, I don't know, it doesn't really have anything to do with Jacob, but this idea of trickster is inherent in it. So, here we go. Coyote, coyote, please tell me, what is a shaman? A shaman I don't know anything about. I'm a doctor myself. When I use medicine, it's between me, my patient, and the creation. Coyote, coyote, please tell me, what is power? It is said that power is the ability to start your chainsaw with one pull. Coyote, coyote, please tell me, what is magic? Magic is the first taste of ripe strawberries, and magic is a child dancing in a summer's rain. Coyote, coyote, please tell me, why is creation? Creation is because I went to sleep last night with a full stomach, and when I woke up this morning, everything was here. Coyote, coyote, please tell me, who do you belong to? According to the latest survey, there are certain persons who, in poetic or scholarly guise, have claimed me like a conqueror's prize. Let me just say once and for all, just to be done, coyote, he belongs to none. <laughs>